This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we take a look at the legacy of fashion designer Elsa Scaparelli. We also speak with Lebanese graphic designer Rana Salam about her playful use of colour. Plus, we reflect on the essential ingredients required for designing a summer house in our new summer series. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. We begin today's show in the French capital where a major retrospective devoted to an avant-garde fashion designer is well underway. Shocking, the surreal world of Elsa Scaparelli is on at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs and focuses on the Italian-born, Paris-based designer's provocative and playful pieces. Scaparelli collaborated with surrealists including Salvador Dali, Jean Cocteau and Man Ray in the 1920s. Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, reported on the show. But before we hear that audio, Natalie's joined me in the studio for a chat. First, welcome. Thank you. Second, (laughs) let's dive straight into it. Tell me, you see a lot of fashion shows and exhibitions. What attracted you to this one about Elsa Schiaparelli? Hi, Nick. First of all, I think it was really exciting because Schiaparelli is having a real momentum at the moment. There's a lot of excitement around the brand and it's the first time since Elsa Schiaparelli shut the house in the 50s that there is a revival around this brand. The timing is perfect and that's really exciting, but also Schiaparelli as a fashion house is extremely unique. Elsa Schiaparelli was one of the first designers to collaborate with artists like Salvador Dali, like you said, and Jean Cocteau, Man Ray, and to open the doors of fashion and fine art. So as the first designer to merge those worlds, it's an exhibition that can really expose you to art, sculpture, fashion, and also you get to travel back to Paris in the 1920s, which is great. Is that what made her, I guess, so respected? The fact that she was really the first one to combine these two disciplines? I think so, yes. There was, and I think there still is, a little bit of snobbery around fashion designers going into the world of art, but she did it in a really bold way, and she was really part of that crowd in the 20s, hanging out with the artists and and being part of that community. So she did it in such a unique way. I think no one has been able to replicate that ever since. And she also injected humour into fashion, which, again, especially at the time where things were a lot more serious and stiff, it it was a completely unique approach. Can we talk a little bit about those pieces? So, I mean, she was born in in Rome in 1890. She moved to Paris and created Maison Scaparelli in in 1927. In that time, what came out of the house that maybe we would know or, or perhaps influenced other pieces that are significant? I think all her surrealist pieces is what she's really known for. So if you think back to some of her earlier works, she collaborated with Jean Cocteau on this lobster dress, it's called. It has this giant lobster embroidered all over it. And she also created a lot of over-the-top accessories, a bag that's shaped uh, as a telephone or these giant earrings in the shape of fish, things that maybe you and me wouldn't think of ourselves in, but... 
they are really visually stimulating, they're humorous, so they're always worth seeing. I guess when we see people with playful pieces, you know, I have seen people with, you know, phone-shaped handbags. Is is this coming from Scaparelli herself? Like, she was the first one to sort of do this? Exactly. She was the first one to bring surrealism into fashion and to create these really playful out-there shapes that not many people dared to create in the past. We're sort of touching on her legacy there, and, and you, you mentioned it before. So the, the house went out of business in 1954, but has been revived in, in recent years. There's a little bit of a gap in, I guess, the, the Maison's history there. But what's that legacy, even if there is that gap? Is it pieces like this that other people are now, you know, or have been copying for years, or is there something more to it? I think even if the house was dormant for a lot of that time since she left in the 50s, there is a big legacy, especially the surrealism and the way she worked with artists is is the biggest thing that she's left in fashion. And a lot of designers use her as an example. I think also the way that she created a fashion house that was niche and it was about very specific to her point of view. She never tried to please everyone or do something for every taste. She just did her own thing and catered to a very specific audience. And I think that's really special in fashion and not as common. A lot of her peers, like uh, Gabrielle Chanel, Cristobal Balenciaga, those houses have gone on to become these luxury conglomerates. But Schiaparelli, it's like a little jewel, a very boutique, a niche brand that whether you want to wear it or not, it can bring you joy and it's it's beautiful to see. And is that what makes this exhibition relevant now? So that there's some lessons, whether you're a fashion designer or a business owner, on, I guess, how to create work and, and run a business in a way that's really true to yourself? Exactly. I think that's a lesson that anyone can take, even someone who's in a completely different business. I also really think that going and seeing the fashion next to some of the Dali paintings, the sculptures, there is perfume perfumes as well. She had created a really famous perfume in the 20s called Shocking and it was in a bright pink uh, box. The shape of the bottle was a naked woman, which was clearly shocking at the time. Uh, So you get to see all of this together and, and understand how fashion sort of permeates into culture and informs art and sculpture and all these other creative mediums. Amazing. So we're going to cut now to a chat you had with Daniel Roseberry, the current creative director at Maison Scaparelli. This has been a long time coming, but does it feel like now that there's so much momentum around the brand with your arrival as well, this was the right moment to to open this exhibition and to tell the story of Elsa Schiaparelli to the broader public as well? Yeah, I think timing-wise, I, I don't think we could really be asking for any anything more. The house has a new voice, and at the same time, I think people's understanding and appreciation of Scaparelli will be so enriched and deepened by learning about the origin and learning about her her life and her contribution to fashion and specifically to the designers that also really inspire me, you know, in my work. So I do think the timing is kind of perfect, unplanned, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of cool about it. Uh, is that it, it's been such a kind of happenstance, uh, the perfection of the timings. And do you find that there is a lot of broader interest from on the brand, from the general public who might not be clients, but uh, they're interested in the artistic side of the brand? Uh, what do you hope for these people to, to come away with? I, I think people really cherish the fact that 
that they feel like the house is founded on an, on creativity rather than marketing and us trying to peddle a product. That's what makes Scaparelli feel so pure. And also the fact that her legacy has remained largely undisturbed for so for like 90 years, you know? And the fact that we get to pick up where she left off and there's such a direct through line between her work in the 30s and today. I just think of it as like a brand that people who love fashion love Scaparelli, you know? It's like for people who really truly love fashion. So it has such a unique place in people's hearts, I think. And what was it like for you working with the curator Olivier Gabet and going through the archives and planning the exhibition together? It was an incredible experience. It was a huge learning experience for me too, just to learn a different rhythm and pace that the curatorial side has because it takes so long to procure the pieces that are needed for the exhibit. And there's such a methodology to it that was fascinating to watch. I was not personally involved in Olivier's curation. That was really all done before my involvement. I was brought in to be a part of finalizing the scenography and choosing the pieces from the last three years that would help tell the story of the, of the exhibit. And I think he knew also intuitively that his work would be bettered and be made more relevant or more compelling to a younger audience if we used the work of the last three years as a storytelling mechanism throughout the exhibit. So I think he was really open to that and um, embraced it. And it was a, a joy to work together with him. Amazing. And uh, have you been drawing a lot of inspiration from the archives of Elsa Schiaparelli, whether it was during your day-to-day -day design work or going through the process of, the, of planning and launching the exhibition? And how do you balance that with also bringing the brand forward and adding the, the sense of modernity that you've been adding since your arrival? When I took this job, I knew that the odds of of successfully reviving this house were quite low in a way, you know, because we watch these, re these revival attempts kind of happen and it doesn't always really work. A huge, huge part of why it has worked is because that the legacy that she left behind and the work that she had done is so innately modern and still very compelling in and of itself. It's not like, you know, VNA or something where it's more of a technique or more of a, you know, a way of constructing garments that is the greatest legacy, you know. Scap is much more, in my mind, much more iconic and compelling. If she had been alive today, she would have long since moved on from the lobster dress and things like that. So I've tried to be really, wear the heritage very lightly and And that being said, every season, one or two pieces sort of present themselves as essential to the collection that we're working on. So I think for me, regarding the archives, a little goes a long way. And that's sort of been my mantra. Just sprinkling it in can make it feel so connected to her. We don't have to, I never want people to feel like we're doing an impersonation of Elsa or that I'm trying to do an impersonation of her work. 
And when you speak of uh, Elsa Schiaparelli's legacy, I mean, her relationship with the surrealists, for whether it was Salvador Dali or Jean Cocteau, is a big part of what she's known for. Do you find that she really challenged this ongoing discussion about fashion's relationship with art? And this is a theme that the exhibition draws on. I think it's one of her strongest contributions is that she really broke down that barrier and I think allowed fashion designers to imagine a world in which their their work could be elevated by an approach fine art you know that line being blurred I think is something that so many designers after her have been able to take advantage of and she really was the first to do that Cocteau and Dali I mean there's many other examples too but those ones are are so you know ubiquitous when you talk about her you know you can't you can't not talk about them and it was really moving to see the pieces all together I know that you know as someone I'm not an archive obsessed person but I've seen those pieces a lot over the past three years you know in photos and and in imagery but seeing them all physically presented together you really do have a sense of of how groundbreaking it was and how yeah shocking it was probably at the time and i mean the title of the exhibition is shocking and like we spoke about now she really challenged uh, a lot of norms uh, is that something that you are hoping to do in in with your work and uh, your involvement in the fashion industry The thing that I keep coming back to is that I don't think Elsa consciously tried to like have an agenda when she was making her work. I really have this sense that it was, she was working in a way that was so free. You know, I think that a lot of people have asked me, my, my family has asked me, you know, what did you learn about her from the, from this exhibit and from seeing everything? And I think it's this incredible sense of freedom that you have, that she was so completely free when she was creating. And, you know, every season it was like everything changed, you know, the buttons changed and the theme of the collections were so wildly different and specific. And at the same time, it all felt like so Scaparelli, you know, and so uniquely her. I just want to be free to, to put work out there that is a really direct and uncontaminated version or reflection of the way that I feel about fashion today and what I think people really want and need to see. If you try and be shocking, I don't think that, how, that that is how it works. You know, I think I want it to feel more effortless than that. And the house is, I think before it was very, it was overly linked with her work. And we've really, since I've started, we've really tried to take a step back. So shocking, yes, but without, without trying is my, is my hope. And you're well on your way to doing that. I mean, in the last three years, a house that was largely dormant and now it has so much attention from the global fashion industry. And with the opening of this exhibition, even the general public is, is becoming more aware of the brand and its, uh, its heritage. But what's next now that you've laid the foundations? What, what are your ambitions for the brand and what do you have coming up next that you can share with us? I want to take Scaparelli to a level that I don't think anyone would have ever thought it could, it could go. I think we're already on that trajectory, that the voice of the house has become sort of undeniable 
in the landscape of what's happening in fashion. I have an intense ambition for the house that I I think is very much what Elsa would have wanted. And, and the dream for me would be to be able to expand beyond fashion. I really like and looking forward to forays into and really being able to apply the language of SCAP to everything from interiors to fragrance, also to collaborations. I know a lot of people ask me about collaborations and I, I think collaborations with fashion might not be the answer. I think, you know, we obviously dress a lot of celebrities and that's a way of collaborating and co-creating a moment with someone who is creating a cultural moment. But I also think collaborating with with musicians, for example, would be an incredible way to kind of expand beyond fashion. I mean, when you think about, when I think about Scap, I think about the way that she did go beyond fashion. And I see the future of the house as very expansive. Obviously, we're taking steps to grow the ready to wear, which is really exploding and, and beyond. And that's, that's all fine and, and good. Sounds so exciting. Just to end as well, can you tell me if there are any special pieces or anything new that you discovered from the exhibition and from working with Olivier Gabet on this, despite your knowledge, intimate knowledge of the house, was there anything else that, that came up during the process? One of the things that felt really satisfying to see was there's a wall, there's a cabinet of buttons and, and bijou of hers and specifically some pieces from Giacometti. And it was really important for me to see those pieces in person. They were buttons and brooches and um, there's a sphinx. There's a few, I think there's an angel in this incredible Giacometti textured gold. When I saw those pieces, you know, in the archives as imagery two years ago, it was the thing that unlocked for us the the hardware and the jewelry and what has become and the body bijou that we do, which is such a part of the language of the house right now. There's a, a, a jacket, the shot glass jacket with Dali that she did, which has these shot glasses filled with absinthe. It's one of my favorite pieces. I, I love that, that garment as well. And I really regret not putting a version of that on the runway where the model's walking around and the absinthe is spilling all over the runway and the audience. I thought that that would have been great. But yeah, there's so much actually that the, the, the exhibit is really rich and, and deeply textured with layers and layers and layers of her work. Daniel Roseberry, Artistic Director of Maison Scaparelli. Natalie, thank you very much for that piece. It was a pleasure having you in the studio. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Amazing. So the exhibition, Shocking, The Surreal World of Elsa Scaparelli, is on at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs until the 22nd of January 2023. We'll be back after this. Tune in to Monocle on Culture, where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film, music, art, literature and more. It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. I appreciate that some of the most brilliant art, most of it, grounds you in this moment and makes you confront it. With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed. Why'd you come in here looking like that is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in <laughs> your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 2000 London time here on Monocle 24 and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts. 
summer in the Northern Hemisphere is in full swing. And with our seasonal newspaper on newsstands across the Mediterranean and available for purchase online, the team at Monocle have been taking well-earned breaks. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, ducked off to Spain for a festival and Nolan Giles, our executive editor, has already spent some time poolside in South Tyrol. As for me, well, I jetted off to the Great Lakes of the US. And while each of us had a markedly different holiday, we all put our feet up in spaces and homes that helped us enjoy the best that the season has to offer. Inspired by this, and as part of our month-long summer series on Monocle on Design, I've penned a list of essential features that should be included when commissioning an architect to build a summer house. Whether you're in Palma or Palermo, there are some essential features for commissioning an architect to build a summer house. One, embrace the landscape. Ideally, you've escaped the city and headed to the coastal mountains. As such, spaces should be designed to allow the indoors and outdoors to merge with a grand balcony or large doors that easily open onto nature. Two, construct big windows. Let those long daylight hours pour in. Ideally, any apertures should be shaded and positioned to face cooling breezes, making aircon far from essential. Three, use cool materials. Inside, use surfaces that are cool to touch. There are few better feelings than coming back from the beach and walking across stone floors or tiles. Four, select relaxed furniture. Furnish rooms so that you can readily recline with a good book. I'm particularly enamoured by Time & Style's recent reimagining of Peter Zumpfer's Val's collection. Five, have quick access to water. If you're not within walking distance of a beach, dig a pool. Frivolous shapes will date quickly, so opt for something sober and let the water do the talking. Graphic designer and artist Rana Salam splits her time between the Middle East, Europe and North America. Over the course of her career, she has played a significant role in elevating the design culture in her native Lebanon. Known for her mixed graphic style and bold colour choices, she designs products and interiors that are playful and uplifting. For proof, we can look to her recent collaboration with Lebanon-founded women's wear label Milia M. Together, they produced a colourful kimabaya, a hybrid of the kimono and abaya, with Rana's trademark yellow-striped patterns front and centre. To find out more about her design approach, I caught up with Rana in the studio at Midori House. I began by asking her how she found the use of colour to be an integral part of her practice. Believe it or not, the time I realised I was good at colour is at art school. During St Martin's, I was taught by Morag Myroskov. And uh, Bizali, she, 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 was, she was the queen of colour, I have to say. And being a young student of hers, she commented on my work. And I remember she said, Rana, you're brilliant with colour. And I couldn't see what she was saying. And I just thought, my God, this is for me, it's so natural. But for her to say that, I realised that I've got, I'm onto something that I could, you know, expand on and, and celebrate. And realising through my thesis and my understanding of design and how it works, colour is a very emotional ingredient in design. It, it moves you. When I would look at my own culture in the Middle East, or say places like India or Egypt, colour is, is the thing that they use most in their work, especially when it's actually you're dealing with a poorer environment. Bizarrely, colour is what lifts the spirit. When you're actually richer, you're more black and white and slick. Colour is not really consumed that much. 
it's it's very interesting when you start studying the whole relationship with color and humans. So with with my work, I was able to move people not to, just through the visuals of Middle Eastern culture, but definitely through color. People would walk in, and it's very eye catching. It makes really people move emotionally, and that's very powerful when it comes to design. I remember I was actually working on at that time at Samartes. I was working on t- some tea labels, and I the way I approached the brief, I actually translated all the tea packaging with a burst of colors and probably that was so unexpected because you know tea in England is supposed to be very you know proper and everything monochromatic and I was like wow you know just went for it and that for them was like what the hell is you doing this is brilliant and that's what caught their eye so I was going against the grain everything that was you're not supposed to do And But then, for me, it was very instinctive, totally instinctive. Uh, color for me is instinctive. I know some design schools, they teach by, you know, the laws of color. I was like, what the hell is that? You know, there's all these formulas, you know, co- complementary and I don't know what. But yeah, I never work like that. It's very instinctive. So, uh, I mean, tell me about that instinct. Is it, Do you think that was something that was perhaps accidentally cultivated in your childhood or is this just something that... Gosh, instinct of color. I don't know. It's like when, when you... When you don't teach somebody how to play the piano, it's the same thing. I don't think it's a, it's an instinct. It cannot be taught. So you just started using them. I started using them, but of course, then I I so enjoyed and realized the power of it that I would actually get very inspired from fashion. Fashion was a huge influence on my work, and you know, there's actually two things that are very influential: is fashion and food. These two my observation and, and uh, enjoyment of how things are put together had a huge impact on my design results. And how do you start to pull, you know, particularly food into <laughs> graphic work? Is it, is it and, and in relation to colour, is it looking at the colour in the food or is, it, or is there something else? Is there flavour? Is there, how does that start to, I guess, distill down to graphic work? I think with food, for example, when I was young, my father would always send me to the shops and I would just be drawn by something. It's, you know... Something specific, I don't know, definitely through the colors, not just flavors. Beirut is very rich when it comes to food. And that had a huge influence of how I would, you know, go and buy stuff. What are flowers? Fashion, I would look at a lot of wonderful brands like Marnie, you know, Paul Smith, the king of color. A lot of other brands that, uh, Eli Kishimoto and all of these brands that were so mesmerizing when it came to their color combination. But there's no real formula. There's no secret formula. It's, it's pure instinct. Like people think that you know, navy belongs to a bank. I was like, why? Green belongs to. It's an Islamic color when it comes to doing something from at least in companies. There's no rules, absolutely no rules in my books. When it works, it just you you know it's working. Why do you think we put these rules on ourselves, though? Oh, I don't know. But that's the contrast between the Middle East and the West. I, I found that when I was studying here, there were so many strict graphic design rules. They come from maybe, I don't know, the Bauhaus that comes very strict. And they filter into design courses, especially with grid systems, uh, color coordination. Uh, you know, you know when something looks specifically Norwegian or, or Japanese or... Uh, you know, when something looks Indian, it's it's very colorful. So th- these things do influence culture, their behavior through color. So when I was studying in London, I felt there was a lot of room for me to come and create a splash, which the British loved. 
They loved the sense. They they were like thirsty for this, and I was very much welcome to work and 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 put that in, into my projects. I mean, you, you talk about the influence of, of colour in different cultures. I want to know about the influence of colour on us as people. You know, when you're designing something and you're, and you're thinking about the colours that you're going to use, are you thinking, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick this yellow because I want it to be uplifting or I'm going to go with a blue because I want it to be calming? Is anything like that coming through in your work? I think it's really like when, when a composer is putting music together. It's instinct. But you can feel that yellow, which is mainly a part of my brand, as you probably know. Actually, when I look at the color, then I might analyze why I'm attracted to yellow. And then you understand it's a very attractive yellow. It's a color. It's something that is uplifting. But it's really, for me, it is like music. When you mix colors, it's like music. It's the tonality, how it affects how you feel. It creates a mood. So it's like playing the piano. I don't know if I'm making any sense. You are making sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to know, like, who gave you the permission? Who gave you the permission to break rules? This is what I want to know. This isn't my big thing. It feels like you've you've come in and you're like, well, I'm just going to do what it, what feels right. I think I've always been an enfant terrible, as they say. I've always broken rules. I since I think my dad gave me a key to a Vespa when I was very young, that created the rebel in me, and I've always been that kind of person from the age of 15. I love breaking the rules. I love provoking. The rebel and rule breaker Rana Salam there. You can find her current collaboration with Milia M at miliam.com. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra. That airs on Thursdays. Or, if you prefer print, then pick up a copy of Monocle magazine on all good newsstands now. Today's show is produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Emily Sands. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>